I'd like you to turn to the book of Colossians, if you would, please. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 9. Colossians 1, 9 says these words. For this reason, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. How many, when you're going through something, would like to see God's point of view on what you're going through? Anybody? There's a version of the Bible that puts it this way, that you would see things from God's point of view. I like that free translation, paraphrase. That God would allow you to see things from God's point of view. There's always a bigger picture going on that one you and I can visualize. You and I need to learn to see through the eyes of faith. We need to adjust our view away from what we see here from our perspective on earth. And when we're going through a difficulty and a trial and a challenge in our life, are we on earth looking up at the problem from our perspective? Or do we see ourselves seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and looking down at the problem from his perspective? Which one do we do? Do we look up from earth from our perspective or do we look down from above from his perspective? And boy, does it change the way we see things. Amen. It really changes the way we see things. A few weeks ago, I asked a question on the story of Stephen in the book of Acts. The death of Stephen, was it a tragedy or was it a triumph? You've had a couple of weeks to mull it over. What do you think? Was it a tragedy or was it a triumph? How do you perceive, how do you view what it is? I want to go through some examples in Scripture and ask you the same question. In this story, was it a tragedy or was it a triumph? I want you to think of a man named Jacob in the book of Genesis. He had gone through so many heartaches in his life He never got over the pain of losing Joseph to some wild animal. Do you remember his ten sons brought Joseph's coat of many colors and had blood all over it? And he said, oh, wild beast has devoured him. And he thought Joseph was dead. And he never got over the pain of losing Joseph to a wild beast. And then the day comes when he sends ten sons out to Egypt to buy food because it's a time of famine. But only nine sons return. Simeon, he finds out, is in prison. He discovers that the governor of Egypt is one mean man who seems to treat everybody else generously. But when it comes to Jacob's family, he seems to be very, very harsh. And then they tell him that they can't go back to Egypt to buy any more food unless they take his beloved Benjamin with him 
And when he hears all of these news, and when he considers the events of the last several years of his life, going back decades to the time he thought Joseph died, he makes this statement. He says, All these things are against me. So I would ask you, when he said, from his perspective, all these things are against me, was he telling the truth? Was he telling the truth? Were they really against him? Because from his perspective, it sure seemed like it. Well, what about the story of Joseph himself? The one that Jacob did not know was the governor, the prime minister there of Egypt. What about Joseph himself? When Joseph gets two dreams about his brothers bowing down to him, when he was thrown into the pit by his jealous brothers, when he was sold as a slave to a man named Potiphar in Egypt, when he was wrongly accused by Potiphar's wife, and wrongly imprisoned, was his life really out of control? Was everything really going backwards to what God had promised him? Had God abandoned him? What would you think? When your whole life goes completely backwards to what God promised you, had God abandoned him, what is life out of control? I want you to think of a man in the New Testament named John the Baptist. He's in prison. Herod has got him locked in a dungeon. You see, he had been preaching, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And when he's there in prison, he begins to wonder if he was right in his testifying about Jesus. Because Jesus has not come to rescue him from the dungeons of Herod. And John begins to take offense at the lack of action on the part of Jesus. Apparently Jesus did not think that he needed to do prison ministry with John the Baptist. And he takes offense. What about Elijah? One of the most powerful men in the Old Testament, Elijah. You should have been there that day on Mount Carmel. It was quite a sight to see. You should have been there. One prophet of God versus, was it 850 prophets of Baal? Do you remember what happened there on Mount Carmel? Where they're both going to make sacrifices to their gods and the God that answers by fire, he is the God. And Elijah has been waiting for three and a half years for the moment. He's been believing, interceding, and praying for three and a half years for the moment when the fire would fall and the power of God would be publicly demonstrated in an awesome manner. And the time has come when he's out in Mount Carmel. And the prophets of Baal do their sacrifice first. Do you remember how they cut themselves with knives and danced around the altar and... And nothing happens. You remember Elijah standing by, mocking, Where is your God? Yell a little louder, maybe he's asleep. You know, and just mocking the prophets of Baal. And all day long they do this, and there's no fire from heaven. And when it's Elijah's turn, 
I don't know where he got 12 buckets or barrels of water in the time of famine. Just to make it completely impossible for the fire to start, he soaks his sacrifice in water. And he simply cries out to the Lord. And the fire falls. After three and a half years of waiting and of intercession, and the fire falls. And everybody falls on the faces. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. A powerful demonstration of the power of God. Everybody gets excited and he slaughters the prophets of Baal in the, in the brook underneath the mountain. And then he discovers something. That Jezebel is not interested in capitulating to him. Matter of fact, Jezebel says, God do more to me if you're not dead by this time tomorrow. And instead of national repentance, instead of revival, instead of Ahab calling the people back to the worship of the Lord, instead of the overthrow of all the prophets of Baal in the land, uh, Jezebel makes an announcement, you're dead by this time tomorrow. And he experiences severe disappointment that the moment he had waited for, for three and a half years, it came and it went, and it all ended in dismal failure. And the hope of all the prophets that were before him were now doomed to disappointment because on his watch, he wasn't able to bring the nation to repentance. He's disappointed. He's depressed. And he even gets suicidal over the whole thing. So what happens to us when you give your life something for something and God does not meet your expectations at what you figured he was supposed to do? Anybody been there and done that? That God has not met your expectations of what you thought he was supposed to do. What happens and what we believe for doesn't materialize the way we expect it to. Do we take offense? Do we draw back? Do we lose faith? Or is the problem more that our perspective is faulty? That when we see things from our point of view on earth, it's full of questions and difficulties... But if we could adjust our view to seat, sit in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus and look down upon it from His perspective, would we think different? Are we guilty of looking from beneath at the problem instead of looking from above at the trial and the difficulty? Let me go back to the story of Jacob. He said, all these things are against me. Since you and I have the ability to read the end of the story, and the end of the story is glory, since you and I get to read the end of the story, maybe you and I could see that when Jacob said, all these things are against me, all these tragedies and these trials and these difficulties that make you wonder, God, where are you? Where's your promise? Where's the fulfillment of your promise? We can see that the very things that Jacob thought were against him were actually the stepping stones that led to the fulfillment of what God had promised him. Is that not correct? 
Because you see, God knew something that Jacob didn't know. And God knew that there was going to come a worldwide famine. And it was going to affect the entire area of Canaan where they were living. And God knew that if he did not prepare in advance for this famine, that likelihood Jacob and his descendants would perish in that famine. And then what happens if Jacob and his descendants would perish, what would happen to his covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So when he thought that he lost Joseph, that really was not the truth. The truth was that God was sending Joseph ahead of them to a place called Egypt to promote Joseph so that Jacob and his family could be saved. Is that not true? And that God had to work out many details in Joseph's character. And God had to make out, work out many details in the character of his ten sons. And indeed, and in Jacob himself. And once you see the end of the story, you know that none of the things that Jacob thought were against him, were actually against him. Though from his perspective, it looked like God had abandoned him. It looked like God had failed. It looked like God was not interested in keeping his covenant or keeping his promise. But God sees a far bigger picture than what we see. And the very things he thought were against him were actually the stepping stones of God being faithful to his promise. Perspective really makes a difference in how you think about something, doesn't it? Perspective really makes a difference how you think. And it takes faith to adopt God's perspective. What about Joseph? We know the story of Joseph. We're familiar with it. He had to learn to see that all the things that he thought were against him, his brothers throwing him into the pit, being sold to slave traders, taken down to Egypt, being sold to Potiphar, being betrayed by Potiphar's wife, being wrongfully imprisoned, being forgotten while he was in prison. It may appear to Joseph that God isn't interested in my life. It may appear that I I try to be faithful, I keep the faith, I keep my heart pure, even in the most difficult of times, I'm disciplining my heart to keep it pure, I'm trying to keep the faith, and for all the years that he keeps the faith, it seems that God's not interested in keeping his promise, because the life of Joseph keeps going further and further and further backwards. But since you and I have the advantage of reading the end of the story, He ended up in glory. He was elevated to the place of glory in Egypt. And then at the end of the story, when he had a different perspective, he was able to say, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. It wasn't you that sent me, it was God, sovereignly controlling history, that sent me ahead of you for the purpose of saving your life, because God made a covenant with our fathers. God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to ensure that that covenant would come to pass, God sent me to Egypt to save the covenant from extinction in a time of famine. God sent me here to preserve your lives. So what looked like was against them, was it really against them? Or was it actually all working in his favor? 
I like the story of John the Baptist. Jesus said, There was no man born of a woman greater than John the Baptist. I want you to put yourself in your shoes as much as your imagination will allow you. You're John the Baptist. My goodness, your birth was supernatural. Your mom was one old woman when you were born. Another Abraham and Isaac story, Abraham and Sarah story. But you're full of the Holy Ghost from your mother's womb. Now that's neat. Boy, one years old and already full of the Holy Ghost. You know, powerful, powerful story. Comes in the spirit of Elijah, uniquely called by God in a time of history to transition from the Old Testament law to the New Testament gospel, the last prophet to witness before the coming of Jesus Christ. And you get to introduce Jesus Christ to the whole world. What a man! And he had the call of God upon his whole life. He didn't know a moment in his life without the call of God on him. Without the anointing of the Spirit of God in him. And he lives his life in the wilderness in complete preparation for the life call that God has given to him. Everything about his life is geared to express the call of God on his life. He's preaching out there in the wilderness. You should have been there to hear them because they came by the thousands. They came from Jerusalem. They came from Judea. They came down from Galilee. They came from across the Jordan River. They came from everywhere. He was preaching to crowds of thousands and thousands and thousands of people, telling them to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were acknowledging their sins. And he was baptizing them in the Jordan River. And then there comes a day when someone special comes to be baptized. And the Spirit of God witnesses to John and says, That's the one. That's the one. That's the one. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And John has this privilege of baptizing Jesus. And the heavens open. And the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Jesus. What a man this John is. Because from that point, he's going to decrease. And Jesus is going to increase. And when Jesus gets more popular than him, he has no jealousy and no envy. He says, that's right. I'm, he's the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. He must increase. I must decrease. What a man. But he keeps on preaching. Boy, you should have heard him preach. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is coming. Oh, you soldiers, you stop your violence with men. You've got two coats. Give one to the one who has none. And you Pharisees, God can make children of Abraham out of stones. Don't bother me, you guys. And he goes on, and he's fearlessly preaching. And he's preaching about Jesus. And he says, when Jesus comes, I tell you, when he comes, you think, I'm tough. He said, he's going to baptize with Holy Ghost and fire. I just baptized with water. But the one coming after me, and I'm not worthy to even undo his shoelaces, he'll baptize you with fire. And when he says, with fire, I'm convinced it means judgment. 
Because you said He's going to come and purge this floor and He's going to sweep the place clean. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff and the chaff He's going to burn with fire. And boy, the power is coming down. The kingdom is coming. Everybody better get themselves right. And He starts preaching hard against sin wherever He finds it. And He's going so hard at it that He looks at Herod one day and Herod says, He says to Herod, It's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife Well, Herod feared John, thinking he was a man of God, a prophet. Herod's wife was another story. Imprisoned that man, and she would have had him killed if it wasn't for Herod fearing John. And so John is now there in prison. I don't know how many months he was there. But you know what? The kingdom of God's coming any time. It's all about to happen now. Power is going to explode any time. I tell you, Herod's on his way out. The Romans are on their way out. Sinners are on their way out. Any time now. Any time now. You know, any time is good now. Any time. And then he starts hearing reports about this Jesus, the one he told the whole world to follow. You know, John, you're out there in the wilderness um, living quite an aesthetic lifestyle. Uh, You came neither eating or drinking, and you're condemning sinners. uh, But this Jesus, he's a wine-bibber, and he socializes with sinners. Nothing like you at all. As a matter of fact, he has no problem going to parties with sinners. Uh, John... Where's the rescue from prison? Where's the judgment coming upon the sinners? And while he's in prison, he has these doubts. It's awful to be in prison with doubts. Have I been wrong? I have given my life wholeheartedly, without reservation. It's what I believe God has wanted me to do. But it's not producing the results I thought it should produce. There's no judgment coming. Herod is still on the throne. I'm still in prison. The Romans are still in authority in this country. We are still subject to the Gentiles. And this Jesus who I thought was going to clean up all the mess... eats with them, the sinners. He's having doubts. And so he gets two of his disciples and he says, you need to go find this Jesus. You need to ask him a question. Are you he that should come? Or should we be looking for another? None of us in this room can appreciate the terror that was going on in John's soul to ask such a question. Are you he that should come, or do we look for another? And if you could read the Greek languages, do we look for another kind of Messiah? Because you're kind of not what I expected here. And John needs some readjustment in his understanding about the kingdom of heaven. Faithful and committed, but imperfect in his understanding. And his imperfection in his understanding led him into a deep, dungeon of doubt about what his life was all about. 
So he sends two of his disciples to find Jesus. And what is Jesus doing when his disciples find him? Well, he's busy healing the sick. He's opening the eyes of the blind. He's raising the dead. He's cleansing lepers. The deaf are are hearing. The lame are walking. And I can just imagine Jesus ministering to the masses, his healing power. And these disciples of John come up. uh, Excuse me, Mr. Jesus, sir, can you give me a a minute or two? Uh, John, you know, remember John, your cousin, your second cousin, John? Remember? He sent us with a question. Are you really the one we should be looking for? Because you're not doing what we thought you're supposed to do. Well, I like the answer that Jesus gave. He said, well, just go back and tell John what you see in here and let him figure it out. Oh, and as you go, by the way, I have a message. Uh, Blessed is he who doesn't take offense. Can you imagine John the Baptist taking offense at Jesus because Jesus didn't do what he expected him to do? Blessed is he who doesn't get offended when it's not working out the way you think it's supposed to work out. So they take that message back to John and John has to sort that out. What that does is forces John to reread his scriptures from a different perspective. And John has to sort it out about all those passages in Isaiah about healing the sick and so forth. And he has to readjust his understanding about what the Messiah is all about. And what I found interesting is that when uh, John sends those, or Jesus sends those disciples back to John with that report, that Jesus in Matthew 11, you can read it, he immediately preaches John's funeral. He gives a eulogy while John is still alive in the dungeon. Because Jesus knows he's not going to get one. So he speaks his funeral service while John is still alive. When you went out to the wilderness, what did you expect to see? A king? Well, kings live in palaces. Somebody in soft clothing, they have to live in palaces. But a prophet, I tell you, more than a prophet. And he gives a eulogy about John while John is still alive. Because he knows he's going to perish. And John the Baptist had to change his adjustment and his understanding of what's supposed to happen when the Messiah shows up. You and I are praying for revival. We bring expectations. What's supposed to happen when the fire falls? What's supposed to happen when revival comes? And we have expectations. Now what about Elijah? He's another interesting man. Elijah, fearless, powerful man, risked his life for the cause of the kingdom of heaven, stands against insurmountable odds, and yet he also looks at his own life through the lens of his own self-understanding. For three and a half years he waited for that moment when the fire would fall and the back of Baalism would broken would be broken. And surely with this manifestation and display of the power of God, the nation would deeply repent. But the moment came and the moment went, and the nation did not repent. Yes, there was initial awe at the display of the power of God, but the fact is it did not produce lasting results in anybody who saw it. The initial enthusiasm, there's a move of God happening, it did not translate into godly living. 
There are plenty of other prophets of Baal still in the land. Jezebel did not yield. Ahab did not call the nation to repentance. And the judgment of God displayed on Mount Carmel that day did not produce the results that Elijah thought it should produce. The fact is, Elijah fell into a deep depression. He sat under a juniper tree and he complained to God. And he basically said, my life work for which I have lived and given myself and devoted myself is all for nothing. It's enough. Take my life. I want to die. Now, if he really wanted to die, he should have just hung around because Jezebel would have gladly taken care of that request. God has to minister to his prophet. Sends an angel. I mean, angel food. I don't know what it was. But this angel feeds him with this food and he goes in the strength of it for 40 days. And he takes this long 40-day journey because what has to happen is a complete readjustment of his thinking of what's really supposed to happen when God shows up. And he has to rethink everything. And he goes into this cave, into a mountain. And there God deals with him. God starts asking him questions. Elijah, what are you doing here? And his answer is, I'm the only one left. It wasn't true. He didn't know there were 7,000 others that had not bowed the knee before Baal. But he thinks, I'm the only one left. And this is it. And if I fail... The whole history of Israel comes to a disappointing, dismal end if I fail. So God has to teach him a lesson. You remember what happens? There's a wind, shakes the whole mountain. You remember that? Picks up the boulders and throws them, uproots trees. Do you remember the earthquake? Do you remember the fire? Do you remember all of that? All signs of judgment. God cleaning and upheaving things and turning things upside down. All signs of judgment. But the fact is that Elijah had to learn, yes, God can judge. But in those wind and fire and the earthquake, the presence of God was not found. Do you remember that story? Do you remember that? And then God comes to him in a still, small voice. And that's where God is. You see, what Elijah had to learn, that God would rather not judge. His heart is not revealed in judgment. His heart is revealed in mercy. Do we catch that? Because Elijah wanted God to come and cleanse the place and judge the place. But that doesn't reveal the heart of God. Because if you remember when Moses prayed, show me your glory, what did God show him? Mercy, long-suffering, compassion. Mercy, long-suffering, and compassion. And judgment does not reveal the heart of God. Mercy does. Say amen or something. Mercy reveals the heart of God. But you see, when Elijah went into his his ministry and gave himself over, he didn't quite understand that. And when it didn't work according to his perception, he ended up in a severe depression that took a visit from God to get him out of it. You know, he had to learn to see things from God's point of view. From his beneath perspective, he viewed his life as a failure and he wanted to die. 
Well, if he could have only seen from God's above perspective, he would have realized, die, I've got a chariot of fire taking you into the heavens, and you're not going to die. What a different perspective that he needed to take. When Elijah was translated, Jezebel was still on the throne. Uh, The priests of Baal were still plentiful in the land when Elijah was translated. Yes, the nation would experience wind, fire, and earthquake. The judgments of God would come upon the land, yes. But it happened long after Elijah was gone. But Elijah had to learn, it is mercy that reveals the heart of God. We all want demonstrations of power, and that will bring them to their knees. Not necessarily. It is the love of God that will bring people to their knees. It's the mercy of God that will change people in their hearts. You follow what we're saying here? And Elijah had to learn that perspective. And maybe that's the lesson that he passed on to Elisha at the end of his life. Before he was translated, you know, ask of me what you want. I want a double portion of your spirit. And his answer was, if you can see me when I'm gone, you'll get it. In other words, what Elijah was saying to Elisha, if you can pierce the veil, if you can see the perspective from the other world instead of your own world, you will have an unshakable faith. And that's his last lesson that he's going to give to Elisha before he's taken. So are these things against us or are they for us? When it doesn't work to our expectation, when our lives appear to be going backwards, is it against us? Has God abandoned us? Has he forgotten about us? Why doesn't he answer our prayers? Is it all against us? Or do we need to see a bigger picture of the heart of God? What God is doing in the big picture to change our perspective. You see, the church needs fathers. We need mature leaders who have fathers' hearts. If you read with me 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, there are three levels of maturity that he addresses in this epistle. 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14, listen to the scripture. It says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Now a second group, I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. A third group, I write to you, young men, Because you have overcome the evil one. And then he'll mention all three of them again. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God lives lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Three different levels of maturity. You've got children. Now, what is the perspective of a child? According to these verses, they're the ones who are familiar with the themes like, my sins have been forgiven. 
I've got to know God the Father. He's my heavenly Father. And I get to know the Father's blessings. They are aware of the benefits that they have received. But as the case with most children, they are quite unconsciously aware that they have themselves at the center of the universe. Quite unconsciously aware of that. It's just where they're at in their maturity and in their growth. And what focus they have is, I'm forgiven, I'm a son of the Father, God is my Father, there are benefits there. That's the mindset of the children. Let's go to the young men. When he writes to the young men, see what they're preoccupied with. They're the ones who are strong. They're the ones who know the themes like, I know the Word. I know who I am in Christ. I'm overcoming the wicked one. In other words... I'm a man of God, I've got some power, we prove our skills, we overcome the evil one, the wicked one, we get things done. Yes, we're conquering the enemy. But there's a third level of maturity, which is the fathers. Those who've got a little more experience in life. And what it is about the father, he says, you've known him who is from the beginning. Both times, that's what it says about fathers. You have known him who is from the beginning. In other words, they have entered into the heart of God, and they've entered into the purposes of God. They know what God is all about from the beginning of time. And they have a completely different view and a completely different perspective. The father sees things very different than the teenager who sees things very different than the young child. You see, I want you to consider you're watching a parade. There's a parade going through the street, up and down the streets, around the corners, through the town. And you have a little child standing on a street corner. He can only emotionally and mentally absorb what's passing in front of him at the moment. It's exciting, it's full of life, there's lots of sound, he's enthralled with what he sees in front of him, but it soon goes out of sight, and something else comes along and takes its place. And it has its own unique effect on that child, and float after float would go by, each having their impact upon that child. But the child has no idea what's coming next because he can't see around the corner and he tends to forget what's already been by because he's enthralled with the present and he forgets what's been by and he has no idea what is coming and he's just absorbed with what is right now. So his appreciation of the parade is what's happening right now. But you've got a teenager who's not watching from the ground. He's on a balcony three floors up. He's three floors up on a balcony and he's watching the parade. And you know what? From that perspective, he has a wider view. He can take more in the parade at once. And he can see what's happening right in front of him, but it's more than what's right in front of him that's affecting him because his vision allows him to see a little bit of what's coming and he can still recall what has already been by But he can't see around the corners. Once it's out of his sight, he doesn't know where it's going, and he's not exactly sure where it's all coming from either. But he has a wider perspective. Why? Because he's higher. But then there's a newspaper reporter who's going to report on the parade. 
He's not on the street corner. And he's not on the balcony. You know where he is? He's in the helicopter. How many want to go for a helicopter ride? I tell you, Darla and I did it a while back. I loved it. Uh, He's in the helicopter. And from his vantage point, he can see everything all at once. Hear what I'm saying? He sees everything all at the same time. From his perspective, there's no past, present, and future because it's all in his vision at the same time. You follow what I'm saying here? He can see where the parade began. He can even tell you before it gets to the end where the end of the parade is going to be. And he can see all the twists and the turns and around the corners that the parade is going to go to get to the end result. Everything to him is present tense instead of past or future because it's all in his sight at the same time. You see, from that point of view, He can see why the parade has to go around that corner and around this corner and around that direction. But for the people walking in the parade, they have no idea why they had to turn there or go this way or it looked like a backwards thing. They have no idea. But when you see it from on top, you can see why it has to take the route it's got to take. There's going to be detours. And there are mysteries to the people taking the detours. But not mystery to the person who can see everything at once. You see, who are the fathers? The fathers are the people who have entered into the heart of God, understand the compassion of God, understand the mercy of God, and understand the purposes of God. And when they look at a situation, they don't look at it from the street corner, they don't look at it from the third floor uh, balcony, what they're looking at is from the helicopter. And they could see everything. And from that point of view, everything works together the way it's supposed to. But for the person who's in the parade, maybe this is not going where you thought it should go. You follow what I'm saying? How are we viewing and looking at our situations and our problems? You see, the maturity that you have in the Lord determines your perception. Your maturity... This determines your perception. And the perception you have, in turn, determines your attitude when you're going through it. Your perception determines your attitude. For instance, on a building site, there are three men digging a ditch. You ask the first one, what are you doing? He says, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm digging a ditch. You ask the next person who's doing exactly the same work, what are you doing? Oh, I'm preparing and lay a foundation. You could ask the next person what he's doing, and he says, I'm building a cathedral. Now, of the three, who's going to work just to collect a paycheck? (coughs) Who goes to work because they have to to get a paycheck to live? Oh dear. Did someone just say me? (laughs) Or who is it that takes pride in his work? Who is it that's taken satisfaction out of what they're doing? 
Your perception determines your attitude of what you're doing. Okay, we're not big in ditches. We've got three people prophesying in a church service. What are you doing? What does it look like I'm doing? I'm giving a prophecy. Ask another person, what are you doing? I am giving edification, exhortation, and comfort to the people of God. You ask a third person, what are you doing? I'm building God's masterpiece. I'm a co-worker together in God's masterpiece who is building his church as the bride of Christ he collects on his return. Uh, Of the three, who prophesies the best? Of the three, who's watching over their heart to keep it as clean as possible for the Lord to use? Your perception determines your attitude. We could talk about prayer meetings, we could talk about children's ministry, we could talk about music ministry, we could talk about cleaning church buildings, all kinds of things. But perception determines our attitude. So there are two basic lessons that if we want to avoid being disappointed with God and disappointed in ministry, there's two lessons that we need to learn. One of the lessons is we have to see the heart of God. It's mercy, it's mercy, it's mercy. God is merciful. God is compassionate and God is long-suffering. Even after the devastation of the prophets of Baal throughout Israel in the time of Elijah, even after all of that, even after the slaughter of the prophets, of Baal on Mount Carmel, even after that, God would rather suspend judgment and give space for repentance and mercy. It is mercy and love that win people's hearts. Do we understand this? Oh, we pray, oh God, get those sinners. Let the conviction get them. Let the fire fall and let them fall on their face. uh, Yeah, God is quite capable of doing that. But the heart of God is revealed through mercy. Are we understanding that? So we need to catch that the heart of God is mercy, long-suffering, and compassion. That's the, the, the foundation upon which the kingdom of heaven is built. The other thing we always have to be aware of is that God is working according to a far bigger picture than he's shown you. You have seen only a part. The Bible says we know in part. We prophesy in part. And the part we know isn't equal to the part that God knows. And we have to trust Him that when it appears things are going backwards, it appears God has abandoned us, it appears that God is not answering our prayers, it appears that God's not taking note of my pain and my tears, when it appears that way, it's not true. Wait till you get to the end of the story. And you will see that it's all working together for good. All the time. I don't know if anybody ever told you, but God's in control of all things. So we've got to gain the perspective of Paul the Apostle. He learned to see the hand of God in every situation. If I ever find a Bible character that didn't seem to to, to fall into depression or disillusionment about ministry, I think it's Paul the Apostle. He always speaks victoriously no matter what he's going through. 
Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say to you, rejoice. I've learned to be content in every situation. I know how to abound. I know how to be abased. Um, All things in every situation always work together for good. When he went to prison... In Acts chapter 21, and for the rest of the book of Acts, he's in, he's in confinement, he's under arrest. And the book of Acts ends with him under arrest. You know, the Gentiles that he represented, they lost heart that their champion was in custody. Our champion is not out strengthening our churches. Our champion is not out preaching. Our champion of the Gentiles, we're lost without our leader. He's in prison. And they were beginning, according to Ephesians 3, they were beginning to lose heart, becoming faint-hearted because their champion was in confinement. But Paul would have to say, you think this is against you? You think this is working backwards? It's because I'm in prison that I'm going to get to Caesar. And before Caesar, I am going to put the case of the Gentiles in church before the whole world. Because at that point in history, it was illegal for Gentiles to meet as a religion outside of Judaism. And Paul got to argue the case before the highest court of the world. You think this is against you? If you could only see what God sees, it's not against you. This is actually working in your favor. So Paul learned to be content in every circumstance. He learned to rejoice in every situation. If God is for us, who can be against us? We experience disappointment because we judge things from beneath from our limited earthly point of view. But the good news is this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. God always makes everything work together for good. So let us press on to know the heart of God, His mercy. Let us learn to sit in heavenly places and look down from his perspective of what's going on. Let's not look at things from beneath. Let's look at them from above. God is in control. Amen.